Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, Helen Scales, Chris Smith and Dave Ansell will be bringing us the latest in science news. We'll be hearing how new open access software could help to look for evidence of new species, even in the bugs splattered across your windscreen. So what they're doing is they're taking the back-breaking hard work out of having to analyse the sequences, match them up to ones that we might already know, look at really what that's meaning for us in terms of where the samples are coming from. And they're doing this in what they're calling a metagenomic pipeline, which I think essentially means shove all the information in one end, it spurts out something meaningful and interesting the other end. And how a new study may have found a link between viral infection and chronic fatigue syndrome. They took blood from 101 people who were diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and they compared the blood with 218 people who didn't have the syndrome and they were looking for DNA signatures of certain viruses and they found a match. Plus, a new way of making cheap, slim digital cameras, how climate change will impact on global fish stocks, and we're joined by Richard van Norden from the journal Nature to discuss this year's Nobel Prizes. That's all on the way. So, first of all this week, I have a big question for you. How many living species are there in the world? It's a huge question and there's no doubt there's going to be a really huge answer to it. And we, at the moment, don't really have any idea exactly how many species there might be that we still haven't found. Well, now scientists from America have come up with a possible new way of making the process a lot quicker. It involves scraping the splatter of dead bugs off a car windscreen. What about if you live somewhere very rural and you might hit something bigger than a dead bug? Uh, or oh, it's a live bug when you hit it. What about a deer and things like that? Were they, were they included in the analysis? <laughs> Not in this particular one, and I suspect they might have known it was a deer anyway. And we are talking about very small things that maybe so far haven't quite been identified by science. But this paper, which appears in the journal Genome Research, and it's actually freely available online, and we'll put a link up to it. And it was a research team led by Anton Nekrotenko from Penn State University. And they developed a piece of really clever online software, and it's called Galaxy. It's basically a to help make the estimation of biodiversity based on DNA sequences that have been extracted from the environment a much easier process. And this is something that's known as metagenomics. And until now, metagenomics has been used to assess the diversity of really tiny creatures, including bacteria living in deep sea sediments or even on the surface of human skin. And it essentially evolves taking samples from the environment of material, reading the sequences of DNA from those samples, and then using that to estimate the number of different species that were present on that particular environment. And presumably uh, the DNA survives the splatter process. Absolutely. That's one of the key parts is that you are recovering intact stretches, maybe not the whole chromosomes. But then the big problem is linking those sequences back to something meaningful in terms of numbers of species. And uh, that's really the problem that these guys are trying to address with this particular piece of software. Because what they're doing is they're taking the back-breaking hard work out of having to analyse the sequences, match them up to ones that we might already know, look at really what that's meaning 
meaning for us in terms of where the samples are coming from. And they're doing this in what they're calling a metagenomic pipeline, which I think essentially means you shove all the information in one end, it spurts out something meaningful and interesting the other end. So researchers can use this tool, they can adapt it and they can make it better and easily use it to have a look at their own samples. But these guys tested it out themselves with two cars. One of them was driven from uh, Pennsylvania to Connecticut, the other one from Maine uh, to New Brunswick in Canada. And then they basically scraped the windscreens. And what they found was that there were a number of groups that they could recognise of species. And uh, they also discovered there was a difference in the diversity of those two samples. So this is a quick and some ways dirty way of identifying what species are there. Certainly Um, dirty if your windscreen's covered in splatter bugs. But the problem is, what about if people go long distances in their car? And two, DNA technology being so sensitive as it is, is there not a danger that there's going to be some contamination? If you're trying to do a geographical study and someone once drove up through Scotland and got some midges splattered on their windscreen and that was a few months ago, there's a likelihood the DNA might still be there. And if you then looked at the area around London, for example, opposite end of the country you might get skewed data. No, you're absolutely right. And I I don't think they're really proposing that the driving around and and using your car is the way you'd necessarily collect your data. I think they're really just showing that it's possible, even even with that, bearing that in mind, in the contamination you can have. But you can still have interesting results. You can think of much more sterile and more replicable ways of collecting that data. They're just showing that it's possible. And one of the key things here, I think, is that um, as sequencing techniques become easier and cheaper, we are actually going to see a much great increase in the catalogue of species that have had their genome sequenced and i think it's just an interesting a new way of thinking about what lives in the world around us and more correctly what did live before it got splattered (laughs) on your windscreen absolutely now digital cameras have got immensely better and far cheaper over the last over the recent years but they're still not perfect they're still quite expensive and complicated partly because they're analog devices each pixel converts light into a variable amount of charge then circuitry has to digitize this voltage converting into a number normally from 0 to 256 it also means that they don't have a large dynamic range. They're very bad at taking photos of both bright things and dark things at the same time. Essentially, you run out of numbers between 0 and 256. Now, Eduardo Charbon from the Technical University of Delft in the Netherlands might have a solution. Basically, get rid of the analogue part entirely and make each pixel return only a 1 or a 0. This might sound like a stupid way of getting a good image because it's going to just produce something which looks like a photocopy. But because the sensors are so much more simple, you can get far more sensors in the same space. So what's the difference between what he's proposing and what we have at the moment? At the moment, each pixel um, gives you a number from maybe 0 to 256. This is the, the CCD chip in that's the chip, in the camera? Each yeah. little pixel inside the chip. Whereas he's suggesting using much, many more far smaller pixels, which either return 1 or 0. Now, this actually does work quite well because of, of something called noise. Although the sensor should be returning a 1, sometimes it won't it return a 0, and either it might, should be returning a 0, it might sometimes return a 1. And the probability of it returning a 1 increases as the light level goes up. So if you take, say, a 1,000 um, of these little tiny sensors, which only return a 1 or a 0, then average, the average will change smoothly with the light level. And it's really useful because of the statistics which you're using. The value you read changes very rapidly when it's very dark, so you get good sensitivity at something, looking at something very dark. And it changes much more slowly as it gets very bright, in the same way as your, your eyes do exactly the same thing. Um, and this means you can take photos of things, useful photos of things which have got areas which are very dark and areas which are very bright all at the same time. And also, you don't have to have the sensors which you're collecting for each pixel all in one place. You could take, make an array of like 100 lenses and then have lots of little cameras all lined up. 
and then sort of join the top left pixel from all of those 100 little cameras and add them all up and average it. And so and because how thick a camera is is to do with how far the lens has to be away from the um, sensor and how big the sensor is, if you make the, each sensor really small, you can make the camera incredibly thin. So maybe only a millimetre thick. So it's really down to a question of size. It's, it's an, a way of making these things much, much smaller so that you can pack more of them in. And that in turn means that then you can make use of this, this noise statistics phenomenon to, to get this really smooth gradation. Sorry. No problem with colour? Um, well, you probably do colour in exactly the same way. You put little filters over the different pixels so you get different co- so they pick up different colours. Now, this might kind of just be interesting if it was expensive to make these things, but it turns out that conventional memory chips are light-sensitive. If you scrape off the black um, plastic over the top, they're light-sensitive. So he, he's suggesting that almost all you need to do to make a good light sensor is take a memory chip, scrape the outside off, maybe do a bit of optimization, and you should be able to get a very cheap um, image sensor. I mean, I, personally, I think that what's really exciting about that is maybe we can use these to go and study wildlife and send, you know, this is opening up opportunities for putting cameras out into the world and finding out more things. I think it was just this week that there were albatross carrying cameras around, taking photographs of um, them flying around the Southern Ocean and fishing with killer whales, alongside killer whales. And that was fairly grainy. But if we can make tiny millimetre think cameras, just think what we could do. It's fantastic. I was going to come up with a horrible pun, and since I thought of it, I still will. So making better cameras in future is going to be a PC of cake, is the bottom line, isn't it? Mm. Well, if you went, and it made you feel like you might have chronic fatigue syndrome, having heard me actually talk about that and make that horrible joke, um, there's a big step forward in, in the world of chronic fatigue syndrome this week because scientists uh, over in America have made a link between a virus and chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, chronic fatigue is, it's got a, na- a range of different names, and there's not really any consensus in the medical world as to exactly what this is. But people who actually have it, and there's something like 17 million people worldwide, perhaps 1% of, of the population of most countries probably, are actually suffering with this. People explain that they have symptoms of profound lethargy, tiredness, exhaustion. But they're backed up, these symptoms, by also changes in the way these people's immune systems work. You can find that they have too few of a certain kind of white blood cell called a natural killer cell. And you can also find that they have signs of chronic inflammation going on inside the body but no one's ever found a reason for that until now and a group of researchers uh, at the Whitmore Peterson Institute in Maryland this is Vincent Lombardi and his colleagues have got a paper in science this week where they took blood from 101 people who were diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and they compared the blood with 218 people who didn't have the syndrome and they were looking for DNA signatures of certain viruses and they found a match there's one virus called xenotropic murine leukemia virus related virus and because it takes 15 years to say that that's why we call it XMRV but this virus is a relative of a virus that's normally carried by laboratory and normal mice in fact it's a retro and endogenous retrovirus in those mice it's actually integrated in the genome of those mice so it's not actually infectious to mice because it's already living in their body all the time they pass it from one generation to the next but it can be passed on potentially to humans and it looks like these people who have chronic fatigue syndrome have this particular virus signature in their body. The researchers went a step further, they were able to show that the cells of these people actually are making virus and it can be transmitted from one cell to another when they incubated some of the blood cells in these people with blood from another person who didn't have the disease. 
the new cells took up the infection and started making it. There's also antibodies in the bloodstream of these patients, and this suggests that there is something in this. 67% of the samples from chronic fatigue syndrome positive patients had this virus signature in them, compared with only about 4% of normal people. So it suggests there's some kind of association, but what it doesn't tell us is if the virus is there as some kind of red herring or if it's really linked to the syndrome. It could be that people who have chronic fatigue syndrome have some kind of immune deficit. Their immune system doesn't work as well and therefore they're more likely to carry this virus and therefore it's it's absolutely nothing to do with it. On the other hand, it could be that it's actually linked to it causally. So that's a big question that needs answering. Are we going to answer it? Is there plans to to move that forward and and see what's going on? Indeed, scientists are very interested in that for the simple reason that just four weeks ago there was another paper in the journal PNAS um, and in this group of researchers they were able to show that prostate cancer is also linked to this virus, XMRV. 25% of patients who had prostate cancer, there were signs of the DNA of this virus within the cancer cells but not in healthy tissue in those patients and also people who had prostate cancer with this virus in the cancers had higher grade more aggressive cancers but again it could be just that cancer cells are more permissive they're more likely to get infected with this virus there could also be something wrong with the immune system in people who have prostate cancer and therefore they might be more vulnerable to catching it and that needs disentangling i mean that's a really big important question that now needs answering absolutely it does well more news from the the natural world from me and more predictions that are emerging this week about how climate change is likely to affect the planet and this time scientists from the sea around us project based at the university of british columbia in canada have turned their attention to how the shifting climate could impact the world's fisheries and as you might imagine sadly enough it's not very good news news. Within the next 50 years, we could be seeing the catches of fish in the tropics falling by around 40% compared to today. And that's down to the changing climate. And uh, But however, in areas further north and south, fisheries could in fact expand by as much as 30 or even 70% because of climate changes. Now this is William Chung, Daniel Pauley and colleagues who've run computer models of over a thousand different marine species which encompass together about 70% of the world's fisheries. And that ranges from krill to sharks and this week's European Shark Week so uh, sharks are definitely on the agenda at the moment keep an eye out for those and uh, what they did was they plugged in environmental and biological factors into their model about what affects the distribution of all these different species and therefore if you change the climate under a couple of different scenarios that we're looking at um, how would that affect the distribution of these particular fish now under these models certain countries will see fish disappearing from their nets and that includes Chile, China, the US and Indonesia and that's really simply because because fish will not survive in higher temperatures. They'll either they'll go locally extinct if they can't swim fast enough to escape those temperature changes, or they'll move. And that movement is why some countries will see an increase in fish populations, potentially um, countries including Russia, Norway, Greenland and Alaska, or cold countries at the moment, could be seeing an influx of these species that previously lived in warmer waters further south, trying to kind of maintain the conditions that they are used to living in. Now, the main issue, I think, that kind of comes off this study is that for people living in poorer parts of the world, including lots of those tropical countries, there's so many people who really heavily rely on the seas for a source of food and for income. So this really could spell disaster for those people. And it it goes hand in hand with other studies that are predicting that climate change is going to lead to all sorts of chaos on land in terms of food production. So really, together, that does spell fairly gloomy bad news. You can read more about that. It's the journal um, Global 
will change biology is where this paper has been has been published and the see around us um, have also got a website with more stuff there basically the researchers are keen to point out that uh, there are other things they haven't included in their models so really what we're looking at here unfortunately could be not certainly not the worst case scenario they haven't considered things like ocean acidification which is we know one thing that is going to come along with climate change and they also don't look at the very worst case scenario for climate change itself the international panel for climate change the ipcc have got a really bad prediction of what could happen if things aren't changed in the next few years and they haven't considered that in this model either so this really is just the tip of the iceberg really in terms of what might happen to fish now modern electronics is getting smaller and more capable all the time and all sorts of cool new sensors and communication systems being developed sense chemicals forces and communicate them back to a base station you still have to power these systems and chemical batteries have a limited life and also get much less efficient as they get smaller Now, one obvious really high-density form of energy is from radioactive decay. This stores at least 100 times more energy in the same amount of stuff. Um, But the problem is getting the energy out of it. Now, various spacecraft generate energy from heat produced by radioactive decay. This is inefficient, um, particularly if you're somewhere which is very, very hot. It doesn't scale down being very, very small. Now, another approach is to use the radiation directly to stimulate a structure like a solar cell, which will produce electricity in the same way as it would do with light. Uh, essentially um, it normally takes in energy from light and that um, knocks off an electron off a piece of sodium atom a silicon atom and then that goes around the circuit Um, you can do the same thing with radioactive decay Um, and it can be scaled down very small the problem is that all this radiation tends to damage the crystal structure and conventional semiconductors are very very um, susceptible to damage to damage to their structure and they stop working it gets less and less efficient now, researchers at the University of Missouri may have come, come up with a way around this. Um, use a semiconductor which isn't set crystalline in the first place and is in fact liquid. How on earth does that work? Um, normal semiconductors are very, very dependent on the crystal structure, and it just happens that selenium will semiconduct perfectly happily um, any orientation, even as a liquid, any sort of orientation of crystals. And, so, and this means that if radiation hits the atoms, they get displaced but there's no crystal there in the first place. It so what do you do? You property. warm the selenium up so it stays as a liquid rather than being in a solid form? Yeah, um, I think they were probably I think they were running it quite warm. Um, so it was li- liquefied. And I think it probably also started off amorphous. It didn't have a crystal structure in the first place. So it would be less damaged anyway, even if it was cool. Wow. So the radiation that you'd mix with it would come in, basically shove energy into the selenium. This would then be tapped off and would run a circuit. Run, run around a circuit. And, and because there was no fixed crystal arrangement to get knocked off kilter by the energy from the radiation, it, it should it be impervious to that effect. Yeah, it doesn't affect it. It will get it will get damaged. The atoms will get moved around, but it doesn't care because it was a random structure to start with. When do we think we might see this on the production line? Well, at the moment they've made a battery which is smaller than a two p coin. Um, it's not very pre- powerful. It only produces about sixteen nanowatts, um, but the efficiency is about one point two percent, and it doesn't degrade over time. Um, um, and they reckon it's early days and it should get a lot more powerful. You're never going to be plugging them into a stereo system, but um, for very specialist um, sort of sensors and things, you might see it in a few years' time. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dave. Well, also this week, we've, of course, had the Nobel Prizes being awarded and before that the Ig Nobels, but that's a different story. And we're joined now by Richard Van Norden, who is an assistant news editor with Nature, and he's going to tell us a bit more about them. Hello, Richard. Hi, Chris. Welcome yeah, back it's... to uh, The Naked Scientist. So tell us a bit about the Nobels this week. Who got what? Well, um, interesting that you should be talking about uh, cameras and CCDs and how to turn light into electronics because the physics prize uh, this week went to uh, Willard Boyle and George Smith for their work on inventing the CCD, the thing in your digital camera that, that turns optical light into a 
digital picture. And also to Charles Cow, and he worked on fibre optic cables, those uh, billions of kilometres of fibre optic cables spanning the globe, and the uh, light bounces along inside them by total internal reflection, and uh, it's a very efficient way of carrying the signal. Indeed, we couldn't basically have the internet without fibre optics, could we? Exactly so. Now, the other prizes uh, in physiology or medicine uh, went to Elizabeth Blackburn, Carol Greider and Jack Sostak for their work on telomeres. Uh, these are essentially the caps at the end of your chromosomes, the, uh, the things your DNA is wrapped up in, and they're sort of protective caps. Um, and what Blackburn and, and Greider and Sostak found was exactly how these telomeres worked and what they do. And what happens is whenever your cells divide, you need to make new cells and you need to copy your DNA, the DNA polymerase, the enzyme that reads your DNA, um, can't quite read to the end of the chromosome and it would get frayed, like a piece of frayed string. And you can imagine your cells would keep dividing and your chromosomes would cre- keep fraying and in the end um, your DNA would actually degrade. And what these telomere caps do is they add on to the end of the chromosomes they're repetitive dna structures they keep getting built in you every time and so they prevent the cells that that carry them um, from from degrading but you also need an enzyme to, to build them up called telomerase um, that builds up the telomeres and this for example is what you have in cells that are immortal cells that um, never ever stop dividing. Yes, cancerous cells. So many, many cells that turn cancerous also have this enzyme telomerase, but not just cancerous cells, also stem cells, those cells that can um, turn into many other different types of cells. So it's what they did, what Blackburn and Greider and Shostak did, is, is work out how this process is working and what the structures are. And nowadays, the hope is that we could perhaps use this to understand stem cells better, possibly to attack tumorous cells, cancerous cells. Um, and really, um, the possibilities are endless here. What about chemistry? Another subject dear to my heart. Yeah, chemistry prize. Uh, another biological prize, interestingly enough. It went to Adiyonath uh, Venkatraman Ramakrishnan, who works in Cambridge, just uh, just a few uh, miles away from where you are, and, uh, and Thomas Stites uh, in the US. And um, their prize was for working out the structure of the ribosome, the protein-making factory in, in all of our cells. Um, <clears throat> what the ribosome does is it, it takes DNA, which is, as it were, the blueprint, um, and then it has to translate that into the proteins, the things that actually do the work in your cells, that buzz around and do all the reactions. And uh, Yonath, um, back in the 1980s, decided that this enormous ribosome structure contains over a million atoms. She decided she'd try to crystallize it so you could bounce x-rays through it and from the way they were scattered, work out where the atoms were. Everybody else thought this was a ridiculous idea, but she did manage to crystallize some ribosomes by taking um, some ribosomes from organisms that lived in the, in the Dead Sea at uh, very high temperatures. Their ribosomes are very stable and, and easier to crystallize. And then uh, Ramakrishnan and Stites came along and they worked out the exact structure of the ribosome. They actually completed this, this task in 2000. Now, what's interesting about this is that we're now just working on antibiotics um, that can attack the ribosomes of bacteria. Remember, you need your ribosomes to make proteins. So what we're trying to work on, in fact, Stites Group have a, a company um, that are doing this, is to get antibiotics that, by attacking ribosomes, prevent bacteria from making proteins and therefore stop the bacteria dividing. This could be a way to basically attack bacteria that have become resistant to the antibiotics we have at the moment. 
Fantastic. Well, Richard, thank you for joining us to tell us all about that. I won't ask you to comment on the Peace Prize, uh, somewhat controversial, of course. Thank you very much. That's Richard Van Norden, who is from the journal Nature, bringing us up to speed on this week's Nobel Prize winners. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. That's all we have on this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which was produced by me, Ben Valsler. As always, there's plenty more science available on our website and in our other podcasts. You can find them all on the web at thenakedscientists.com. We'll be back with another round of science news very soon. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.